All right, our scripture today is 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in the service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord, and then by the will of God also to us. Good morning, good morning, good morning. No shade to Emily, but we're going to read four more verses on this. So uh, to finish it off, so... Um, let me let me read the last. This is yeah, Second Corinthians eight that we're reading. I think we went up to verse five. Let me continue on from there. I'll just read from the screen because I keep forgetting my glasses and I can barely read my Bible anymore. So um, continuing six verse six through nine. So we urged Titus, just he as he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But since you excel in everything in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you. I love that phrase, the love we have kindled in you. That would be a good job description for pastors, wouldn't it? I don't know if it always happens. That's a good, that's a pretty phrase, the love we have kindled in you. See also that you excel in this grace of giving. I am not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you might through so that you through his poverty might become rich. And all God's people said, Amen, Amen, Amen. We have got two more weeks in this practices series, and then we will turn the corner along with Lent. Can you believe Lent? Ash Wednesday is only a week and a half away, and we will be in Lent. So this week, the practice we're looking at is the practice of generosity. Will you say that word with me? Generosity. Now, this is a subject matter that sometimes when it comes up, people get a little squeamish or feel like it's going to be a little bit of a guilt sermon or maybe start asking, what's the big push that we're doing, that we have to do a sermon on generosity? Um, I will assure you up front, it is none of those things. This is not a guilt sermon. This is not a push sermon. In fact, it's fun when we can do this. I want to start by just saying... uh, I am so thankful to be part of you all are just a super, super generous church. Like you really are, you all are a super, super generous community of people. Um, Keith celebrated this last week in prayer and praise, but I want to say it again, it's just kind of an annual tradition here that as the final quarter of the year comes, we're staring at a gigantic deficit (laughs) in the giving for the the church and every close of the year, um, there's this big push and we, we, we hit it. And uh, I guess I just I just want to remember to get you know so we have an annual budget here of over six hundred thousand dollars which is a big number and bigger than typically a church our size would have and the reason our budget is a little bit on the bigger side is because you all do you all do what most people don't think can happen we organize in such a way that our money does not primarily go to the things we need as a church community our our money mostly goes towards responding to and partnering with the needs in our community and. The prognosticators say in the North American church that is often defined by materialism, you cannot give people to give sacrificially if it's not for themselves. And you all continue to defy that. And it really is. It's a testament. It's a testimony in its own right. And not only is that wonderful that we, once again, just continue are able to do that, 
But if you've been tracking with us, you know a big theme last year tied with our anniversary and tied with you know our neighborhood development commitment. Um, we have this three-city lot next door, and we did this big building together campaign. And the whole kind of thrust of this was that we did need to raise money both to pay off the big loan we have on it, but also to prepare for the need to do construction on it and to build this thing out this year. So the hope was actually that we wouldn't have to keep asking you to give, that we would organize this in such a way that your friends, family, coworkers, et cetera, would give. And we did events and pushes, and you all did that. But you all still gave a ton even on top of that. Um, this is worth celebrating too, that um, last year, in addition to us still hitting the budget here, y'all gave $115,000 to um, the project next door, that building project. I mean, that's a big number to give when we're already, yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing. And um, yeah, that, that's, that's y'all are a generous group and really it is worth celebrating, it is worth affirming, it is worth um, being happy together with and to make up for that. Quick word on that big project next door. We just had a meeting with the two finance teams from the church and the our city and the nonprofit. And so we, we are we are all all systems go on um trying to move on this is is we're we're gonna now the the hope is basically as quickly as weather will allow us, we're gonna start the project. So I mentioned we have we raised hundred fifteen here on the church side. We've got a five fifty, five hundred fifty thousand dollar loan on that lot. So that's gonna be a continued push trying to whittle that down. Um uh, but this is cool too. Between between grants, foundations, and private giving that was through friends and stuff like that, we're close to two hundred thousand on the our city side uh, for that project too. So, um, best guess is about two hundred fifty thousand to completely renovate that into the you know, basketball court, the soccer field, the performing arts area, the nature area, all those kind of wonderful things. So we feel like we're close enough now to like we're going to go for it. So. I mean, by the time it actually gets nice around here, we, that thing might be transformed over there. So it's all just very, very exciting and uh, very thankful for that. So that turned into a long introduction. Uh, let's get to this passage. Uh, so again, affirming, already saying this is an amazing trait of y'all. Generosity is this uh, consistently lifted up kind of virtue and practice, both Old Testament and New Testament. And I want us to think a little bit about that. Through this passage today, let's just define generosity. It's probably a word, for the most part, we all can intuitively kind of put together. But if we actually look at how most dictionaries define generosity, it's being willing to give above and beyond what is expected or necessary. So kind of assumed within the idea of generosity is that there's maybe an expected or uh, uh, necessary kind of thing that needs to happen. So generosity tends to speak to like when you don't just fulfill that necessary or expected, but when there's a, it's, it's got that above and beyond kind of feel, right? When, when, when you give, and it's not only money, it can be of your time, of your energy, of your, you know, kind of emotions, but when you give above and beyond, you know, uh, I actually don't think it's probably possible. I think you know it's right. I don't think you can be generous without it hurting a little bit. Right? You know, you know, you're giving generously when it hurts a little bit. That's usually when generosity is happening, and so um, that's that's a working definition of it. I think it's cool to look at the etymology of it as well. So um, uh, next word, you know, the word generosity comes from Latin, comes from I think gene is how you would say that. Uh, but that word gene or gene, that the Latin idea of that is to bring life, to birth, or to bring life. So there's something just really profound about the idea of generosity. It's not just the act of giving of yourself or of your resources or, or your possessions, but the Bible is speaking as something that's life-giving, right? That when we, when we learn how to be generous, when we step into that generosity, it actually brings life to us. Um, Taylor, are you around here? Can, can I move? 
does the sound get messed up if I move closer to you all? I hope it doesn't. Can you all still hear me okay? He has everything so carefully orchestrated up here. I don't want to mess something up, but I feel far from you. Okay. So what I'd like to do as we dive into this passage, uh, let me give a little bit of context of what's happening here. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Um, uh, so the Apostle Paul is teaching the church in Corinth about generosity and the importance of generosity. And this is not explicit in the text, but it's clear as you kind of read and build up to this. There's a particular thing happening at that time, which is eliciting this conversation. Uh, the folks back in Jerusalem are facing dire economic situation, uh, circumstances right now. Um, most historians think it's a combination probably of one of two things, if not both. On one hand, you know, this is still an agrarian society, meaning the harvest of the crops is what affects the economic well-being on a year-to-year basis. So it seems that at this time that was a bad, uh, bad year with harvest, so they don't have access to the typical kind of food for themselves and to sell. But this is also the time, this is shortly after the movement of Jesus Christ has began, which kind of launched from Jerusalem and then moves to Samaria Judea, all the ends of the earth. Um, so there was intense persecution. So if you, particularly for Jew, the Jews, if you claimed that you follow Jesus Christ, you were under pretty vicious attack. So the folks in Jerusalem are in dire economic circumstances when Paul writes this. So you've got the city of Jerusalem where people are really struggling. You've got Paul speaking to the church in the city of Corinth. Uh, Corinth is kind of this interesting cosmopolitan city. Yeah, I tend to think that if we were doing a similar to Antioch would have been the city that was kind of Chicago-ish. Corinth would have been very much like the New York-ish kind of city at that time. And so upperly mobile, pretty wealthy, um, but you know, kind of dealing with all the things that cities deal with. So Paul's on behalf of Jerusalem, speaking to the church in Corinth about generosity. But he does this. You don't actually see this too often in the, in the Bible, which I think makes this passage unique. To make Paul's point to the church in Corinth, Paul's going to hold up a different church as an example. All right, so Paul doesn't, or none of the writers do this very often in the New Testament where they say, hey, church A, I'd like you to look at church B to get a sense of how you can live into the gospel here. But that's what, that's what Paul is doing. Paul is saying there, there's this church in the much smaller city of Macedonia who like, like they understand generosity in a way that just like boggles the mind. That's what he's kind of saying. And so he's saying, I think you guys have all the ingredients to do this, the same kind of thing. But I want you to look at the church of Macedonia as kind of a, case study of what I'd like you to understand about generosity. Track it with me? So he's using um, using the, the church in Macedonia as an example. And so three things that Paul really highlights, I think all three are super important when thinking about generosity. I'm going to give all three points right up front for the handful of you who are note takers and actually look back and reflect on these as you go back into the passage afterwards. But um, here's here's three things we're just going to kind of go through them in order that Paul draws out from the church in Macedonia on behalf of what he's trying to teach to the church in Corinth. Um, they're all linked, but they're all kind of their own kind of interesting points. So let me just kind of read these, and if you're listening, you can kind of track the three points where we're going to draw out of here. So Paul's first going to really emphasize that generosity is catalyzed by a transformed view of God's character. I think he's going to go so far to say, you're not really ever going to be fully generous if you don't have this encounter with God's generosity. So that's verses 1-9. This then kind of spills into your internal motivation, and Paul's going to show us that guilt is the typical motivation for giving, but that when you really experience generosity, it transforms from guilt to joy. And then finally, that generosity is always designed to be linked to mercy, compassion, and justice. And we'll say a word on each one of those. Okay? So if, uh, if you don't mind, a couple slides ahead, go to just that very first point. 
um, where we just got the, it's catalyzed by, um, yeah, yeah. So we'll stay here for a second and look at this first one. Okay, if you've got your Bibles, we're going to bounce around in this passage a lot. So if you want to kind of continue to follow through here. Um, it's, it's a little more subtle in verse 1, though. He's making a, a clear point, and then it comes hard at this at the end of the end. So to start this off, when he's talking to the church of Corinth, uh, Paul says, Brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace, there's the key word, the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. So right off the bat, Paul wants the church in Corinth to know that when they look at the church of Macedonia, here's something the church of Macedonia models so well. They have encountered the grace of God uh, in, in a way that's not just this theoretical idea that God forgives us our sins and shows love to us. They have encountered grace in such a way that their lives are totally transformed and where it is affecting their generosity. And so to just get to the punchline, let's go all the way to verse 9, because this is what we'll kind of use to go into our receiving the gift of communion today as well. Uh, uh, he says it is, this is actually, many would say this is one of the clearest links between encountering the grace of God and the producing of generosity inside of us. Verse 9, Paul, again, kind of putting a a punctuation mark, Paul says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though Christ was rich, right, by being part of the triune God and being in the heavenly realms, though Christ Jesus was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Right, so... What Paul is saying, it's, it's, it's self-evident on one hand, but it's just is worth stressing. Paul is saying the, true, the, the way you access generosity in yourself is not actually by looking at yourself first. The way you access generosity is by looking at who God is. That we need to come to this deep revelation that God really is love at the core of who God is. And that more than that, this is the sign. And we're, we're just a couple weeks from Lent. And Lent is this season of really reflecting on the nature of God's sacrifice on the cross. This is held up over and over again as God's concrete sign to us of how much God loves us. That God gives of God's self. God sacrifices God's self for our sake, for our benefit. And the Apostle Paul is saying, this is what, it should be true for all believers, but this is what the, this is what the church of Macedonia gets. They get this, that they have looked at who God is, they have understood God's love, they've understood the sacrifice God has made for them, and that has produced a level of generosity in them. Okay, you tracking with me on that? Now, before, before we move to that second point, one, one other thing, I, I, I think this is just so insightful, and I really think this goes against human logic. So let, let, let's sit in human logic for a moment. Here, here's what I want to explore for just a moment before we move to this next point. Most of us, or at least human logic, I think, would say this. Human logic would tend to, cor- if, if we're talking about generosity, human logic would tend to, tend to link generosity to how much money you make, right? So let, let, let me try to break that down. So if you've got $40,000 worth of expenses just to make it work, and you earn $40,000 a year, human logic would say, that's a person's problem not going to be very generous, right? I mean, they just, they, every dollar they make has to go to the, to the bills that they have, right? You tracking? So human logic would say, if somebody's got $40,000 worth of expenses and now they have an $80,000 salary, chances are likely that they will be X amount more generous, right? And then if, if you know, let's, let's put that way up. Now, if you've got $40,000 worth of expenses and you earn $400,000 a year, human logic would say what? That's the person who's most likely to be the most generous out of everybody, right? Isn't that kind of how human logic would work, right? Less money you make, less generous you're going to be. More money you make, the more generous you're going to be. Well, we actually know from statistics that proportionally, that's almost never the case. Those who have the most money tend to get, like, the number might be bigger, but those, humanly speaking, those who have the most money 
often that does not lead to generosity. And here's here's look what Paul look what Paul really really summarizes here um, when he's holding up the Church of Macedonia. Do you see how he describes in verse two? If you got your Bible, look at verse two. What is the current economic status of the folks who are at the church in Macedonia? I mean, Paul says it pretty pretty dramatically. What is what is what is the uh, current economic status for them? It's extreme poverty. Paul's just being super blunt. The folks that I want you to see, that I want you to learn generosity from, in terms of their current economic status, they are poor, poor, poor. Like they don't have a whole lot to work with right now. And yet, that is not having a whole lot of money to work with is not the clear indicator of whether or not you're going to be generous or not. Right? The indicator of whether you're going to be generous or not is the degree to which you have interacted with the generosity of God's love. That is the primary factor that sparks generosity in a person. And I just think that's a really interesting and important point to make. You know, say it bluntly, you can have a lot of money, but if you've not experienced the generosity of God's love, it's unlikely that generosity is going to be the natural overflow. Say it the other way, you can have not a lot of money, but when you've experienced the generosity of God, the chances are very high you're going to be generous with what you have. So, of course, the ideal is that no matter where we're at, we are learning to encounter the, God's, the love of God in such a way that creates generosity. Tracking? All right, you guys are real, real quiet today, but we're going to keep, keep pushing forward here. All right, second, second kind of big idea that Paul draws from the Macedonian Christians is that when we encounter God in this way, where we see God being generous and that, that affects us, it changes the inter, like your internal motivation can actually literally be transformed. Right? So he's acknowledging what I think most of us intuitively figure out. For most people, without an, without an encounter with God, most people who give, whatever, whatever it be, to church, to a charity, to whatever, you know, nonprofit, most people who give would give, give out of some form of guilt. Right? That's kind of like the native uh, uh, compulsion to give. So there's like a soft version of this where it's kind of like shoulds, you know, like I should give, it's the right thing to do. If you're a Christian, I should give because it's what's expected of me. Right, so some of us give kind of out of the soft version of guilt, which to me is usually kind of an I should, I should, I should. For some of us, and usually this is those of us who still have a very punitive view of God, some give out of a harsh view, a harsh form of guilt, which is like, if I don't give, God's going to, who knows what, punish me, not bless me, make life go harder for me. And so it's kind of almost this transaction. I give so that, God won't be upset. You see what I'm saying, right? That like guilt is often um, the motivation for why we give. But Paul's showing that as we interact with God in this way, verse 3, when he's holding up the church of Macedonia, he says, here's a testimony. I testify. They gave as much as they were able, which is amazing in its own right, beyond their ability, which is, which is amazing in its own right. And then he, he, he stresses entirely on their own, right? <laughs> Paul, Paul knows church culture. Paul knows nonprofit culture. Nonprofits exist in the same way. But right, like guilt is always the easy way to try to get people to give, to try to ramp up that guilt, right? And there's yeah, we, we did that. That's right. We, we have probably all been on the other end of that, you know. Um, um, but Paul's saying like it's not it's not working as well as it could. Maybe even not working right when it requires huge levels of shaking people by the collar and you know getting them all guilt like. That's, that's not what generosity looks like. Generosity does not look like this guilt-ridden giving. Instead, I love this, verse, this phrase in verse 2. Like, I'd really love you to hold on. Um, in verse 2, he says, In the midst of very severe 
trials, here's the phrase, their overflowing joy. Will you say those two words with me in English? Overflowing joy. Paul wants the church in Corinth to see that when it comes to the church of Macedonia, this was not just a spiritual thing alone when they interact with the generosity of God. It transformed their motivation. They're not giving because they should. They're not giving because they must. They're not giving out of this, uh, I don't really want to, but I'm going to. I mean, I mean, this really is kind of incredible. Paul says it's not even just joy. It is an overwhelming joy that these folks experience. That That is the place that their giving is coming from. And so I think it's interesting when you go to, uh, let me go to verse, let's go to verse 8, because Paul comes, Paul does this throughout the passage. He says it one way, and then he comes back to it again, applying it to the church in Corinth. Um, so in verse 8, Paul says, I'm not commanding you to give, but I want to test the sincerity of your love. Now, that kind of still sounds a little bit like guilt, right? I'm not exactly commanding you to, but, you know, if love actually is working in your life, clearly you're going to give in this moment. That almost can sound like guilt, but I actually really hope we'll see he's just building on his earlier point. This really is not an appeal to guilt. He's just making a straightforward observation that the, the encounter you have with the love of God will inevitably create a spirit of generosity in you. Enjoy, like if you want an internal sign to say, God bless you, if you want an internal sign to see how you're coming along in the generosity journey, uh, the sign of how we're internalizing God's love actually can be felt in our motivations. As our motivations, and I don't even think this is, this is something you, you will it to happen, it just happens. When it starts to move from a would, should, have to, to a, now I actually find joy in doing this right? It hurts. It's a stretch. It's a little bit further than I'm comfortable going. But when I do it and I actually feel joy, that is one of the most pure signs that the love of God is making its way into my heart and mind and soul. You see that? I actually think it's it's kind of a neat way to be able to like track your own spiritual transformation progression on this one. When your motivation goes from would, could, should, must to, no, this is actually joy. When I stretch for the sake of Christ and the gospel and the kingdom, when I stretch for that and I see the way it benefits other people, I feel joy in that. That's that's another big part that Paul holds up as he teaches the Corinthian Christians from the witness of the Macedonian Christians. Still with me? All right, one more. And this one feels super important too. It should be intuitive. I think maybe for you guys, y'all, it is. It's not always intuitive for people or if it is intuitive, people just ignore it. But this last one, Generosity should always be linked to mercy, compassion, and justice. That should be the cause um, for why we're generous. Now, we're going to have to do a little bit of Greek study here, but I'm I'm a Bible nerd, so I like this stuff, and I'm sure at least 10% of you like this too. So um, I want you to uh, uh, look in your Bibles in verse, let's start at three. I'm going to zoom in on four, but verse three and four, let me read this again and, and show you where this link is being made. Paul says, For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. And then here's where he continues. Verse 4, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege. This really, again, shows the way that joy was driving them. They pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. Now, this, that phrase, sharing in the service, I only did one of the Greek words. I actually kind of wish I did two now. I'll tell you about one of them, but I have a slide for one of them. So let's start with service. Um, the word for service, you see that at the bottom there? The Greek word for service is diakonia. 
um, which is a cool word in the New Testament. Um, if you grew up in churches that have deacons as um, one of the positions of the churches is where the word deacon comes from. The word diaconia is used always for the responsibility of Christians to be attentive to and responsive to the needs of those who are downtrodden, disinherited, backs against the walls, Howard Thurman called it, poor, struggling, uh, on the underbelly of things. Uh, when, in fact, I, I, I like the way the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, always, like there was the diaconia responsibility of the, of, the, of the Christian community. And God would often talk about three different kind of motifs almost of how to think about those who will continuously be up against the wall in society. Uh, God would talk about always be faithful to the orphan, to the widow, and to the immigrant. And so orphan represented this idea of, or at least in, if we're in our language today, what I think orphan represents is it is the church's job to be particularly mindful of children, children the society has otherwise left behind. Right? That this is one of the preeminent, never changing, never changing connectivities, passions, consuming efforts of the who are the gift from God brought into the community but you know, are at risk of being held out, locked out as outsiders, to be warmly welcoming and to be deeply concerned with all the needs that are required in order to be able to thrive within that society. That You see that over and over and over. This is the diaconal kind of ministry, is the orphan, the widow, and the immigrant. Right. So the first time the first time. Uh, deacon is used in the New Testament, Acts chapter 6, when there's a group of widows, kind of fitting within that one of that same three, who are not getting their fair share of food and who are in need of that. And so it's this really big deal in Acts chapter 6 where there's this kind of organization to respond to that because God cares very deeply about it. All right, so in this phrase, when it talks about the privilege of sharing, so this is where, I mean, it's you kind of get these. You, in English, you hear sharing in the service. It's like, yeah, it's, it, it, it kind of makes sense, but these are really a, p- a couple of powerful phrases. The word sharing right there is the Greek word koinonia. Just, just make sure you're alive. Say that one with me, koinonia. All right, koinonia is the sharing of community together. So it's also a very powerful word. So you get this phrase, uh, th- they urgently pleaded for koinonia, for community, that's diacono, diaconia-centric. All right, um, at, at risk of being lost in the clouds here in the nerdiness. What Paul is saying is that the church in Macedonia understands two things. To be the community of God means you are deeply concerned with ministry to those who are up against the wall as that happens at any given time. Like they understand this relationship between being the church, being generous, responding to people who are in need. All right, now, yeah, I, I think that's, I mean, you, you all are a testament to the fact that you get that because that's where your generosity comes from. So in some ways, it's just punctuating this, but it's also, oh, I don't know. I don't want to go too far off track. We, eh. <laughs> I'm having, we, 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 we live in a day and age where everybody's got kind of like 
a repairing relationship with the church, or many just don't go at all, right? I don't, the only reason I'm like hesitating here, like this is actually what gnawed at me most about growing up in church, is the failure of churches to do this last part. It just felt like whenever there was a call for raising money, it was never for those who are in need. It always felt for like self-interest kinds of things. And so that's something I'm still healing and recovering from. But one of the reasons why this is so important to me, is like, no, that, that I wasn't making that up. That was like before I knew it was in the Bible, I knew it didn't feel right when we're constantly raising money for our own stuff. I mean, there's, a, there's some of that, I guess, that has to happen. But this is when Paul holds up the church in Genera- uh, uh, of Macedonia, he says three things. One, to be generous, you see that God has been generous to you. That's the bottom line, right? To have a spiritual encounter where you see God has been generous to you and it inspires generosity. Two, your internal motivations truly get transformed. You don't just do it anymore because you're supposed to. You do it because there's this deep wellspring of joy in you. And then third, you understand that there's a reason that we're to really stretch ourselves. And it's for the sake of what's always been the focus of the Christian community, to be concerned with children left behind, to be concerned with those locked out of society, to be concerned with welcoming in every kind of way the immigrants. These are the hallmark signs of what's supposed to be the church. There's a whole kind of cool theology about that when in Luke, when in the book of Acts, it says in the early church, they share the possessions. Some people sold stuff. They made sure. And there's this key phrase that says there was nobody there who had need. Within that little church community, there was nobody there who was there need. That was the fulfillment of the whole Old Testament vision that the church would organize in such a way that it consistently responded to the material economic needs of people. And so, whew, that's, I don't, I don't, for me, that's all, that, that, that kind of stuff gets me fired up. Um, it's, 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 to me, it's so much more than generosity is. We should all give, so let's give. No, no, that's not what generosity is. Uh, let, let, let's come back to verse 9. And this is, this, is, this is how I want to start thinking about the receiving of the gift of communion. We are in a series called Practices. We're trying to be practical in kind of this stuff. The practice of generosity is actually really simple. It's just, can we do it or not? The, the, there's two parts of the practice of generosity. See that God's been generous to you? Be generous. That's the practice of generosity. See that God has been generous to you? Have that transform you? Be generous, right? The, the end result of what we're talking about here is really, really simple to say. We're, the practice generosity, see that God's been generous to you, live generously, right? Um, and there's just all this beautiful kind of way that we get there. So uh, let, let's kind of think about verse nine here and um, let's now, we're now fully kind of preparing ourselves for the gift of communion. So I'd like you to just, Meditate as on this verse as I read this again, as the Apostle Paul kind of climaxes with this and what he's trying to teach the uh, teach the uh, Corinthian Christians. Actually, I'm going to make one more note because this sermon would have gotten too long. But I would encourage you; those last three verses is really cool as well. Um, 13, 14, 15 has some really cool theology that I think kind of speaks for itself, but links it to the manna and God providing manna and us trusting that God is going to provide for us is a way to kind of think about, talks about equality and justice, and lots of cool stuff, but we would have run out of time. So um, verse nine, here's what I'd like us to um, just kind of sit in this and, you know, let, let God speak to us. Apostle Paul says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though Jesus Christ was rich, for your sake, Jesus became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. And so as we get ready to reflect on the gift of communion, the sacrament of communion, I'd like you to just kind of slowly kind of make your way through that verse. If Paul was talking to us, he would start by saying, 
for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so even if you want to bow, bow heads and just be prayerful during this part, just think about this. I, I guess I would ask ourselves, do we actually know that? I think this is what Paul would say to us, just like he said to the Corinth, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do we know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ? Let's, let's take a moment, because that's what communion is built to be a remembrance of, is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ through the, the bread that represents his flesh, the blood that represents his blood spilled for us. So let's take a moment, for those of us who already know it, if you don't know it, maybe this can be the first time that you really internalize this, that the Bible says this is how much God loved you. Right, that God was willing to give God's self up completely to be tortured and tormented on a cross in a way that we may not even fully understand, but that was God's way of saying, this is how evil is defeated, this is how sin is forgiven, this is how love is expressed, this is how the door to eternal fellowship is kicked wide open so that all you have to do is walk through it. All right, Paul's, Paul's getting all that when he says, for you know the grace of God, this is the unmerited, undeserved, free gift of God, that is given to us through Jesus Christ. Paul says that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. And so let's first do that individually. Can, can we reflect on, the sake, reflect on this reality that it was for you that God did this? I think it makes us a little bit squirmish, squeamish to like accept this gift. Can you, can you trust that when God was in the heavens looking down, God said, for your sake, I will do this. Can you trust that on the cross as all that is evil in the world, all that is broken, all that is horrible in the world was taken upon himself, God was saying, for your sake, I do this. And then let's think of this through the lens of being a community. Communion, community, same root word, we're receiving this gift. For our sake... God was willing to do anything that was necessary. All these beautiful words. God was willing to ransom us. God was willing to redeem us. God was willing to give God's self as a sacrifice for us. God came in victory. God came for liberation. God came as a fulfillment. All these words that are just trying to paint this picture of a God who for our sake came and got us so that we might be rich. This is God's intention for you that there would be a richness of life, a richness of a sense of self, a richness of knowing your belovedness, a richness of knowing that Christ Jesus has created you in the image of God to have purpose and to participate in the works of God. Riches in the sense of being linked together in community, the riches of knowing that the Spirit of God lives in you and on you, the riches of knowing that Jesus the Good Shepherd speaks to you and that you can hear his voice, the richness of knowing that God's presence is like a home filled with love that you can always come back to, receiving warmth and reconciliation and restoration, the riches of having access to a hope that's beyond anything that the human mind can fully understand but yet which can nonetheless sustain us and anchor us. Right? This was this is who God is. This is what God has done. God has done this for us, for our sake. Demonstrated God's grace and love. So as we are in these final moments, we'll receive the gift of communion. And if you're one of the 
folks distributing communion, if you can start making your way up to the communion tables. As we get ready to receive the gift, let us remember that this is why Jesus told us to do this repeatedly, repeatedly, often in remembrance of him. Because Jesus knew how easy it was for us to forget who God is, who we are to God, how extravagant the love of God is, how desperately God wants us to know the riches of all that come with relationship with God. And so, as you get ready, we'll have, there's a station on each side so you can get come to either line. There'll be elders available for prayer. But as you come up to the communion table, somebody will give you a piece of bread and say, this is the body of Christ, broken for you. And then somebody will give you a cup. They'll say, this is the blood of Christ shed for you. And then you can come back to your seats and just hang on to it and we'll share in a corporate confession. But I would just invite you, I think one of the reasons there's a sacrament of communion is we're meant to tactically feel it. When you hold that bread in your hand, when you hold that cup in your hand, it is to remind us of who God is. It is to remind us of who we are. It is to remind us of what God has done for us. So as you're ready, uh, why don't you come on forward and receive the bread, receive the cup. You can come back to your seat and then we'll receive communion together in a couple minutes.
can we all uh, rise together? We will read a confession together. A confession means to say the truth out loud. And so we say the truth about who we are and how we've fallen away, but also who we are as we're brought in by God. And then I will read a pardon over us. Uh, let's read this together. God, our great giver, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. By what we have done and by what we have left undone, we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We confess that we are not generous in spirit, and therefore we are not generous with our resources. We hoard wealth. We preserve and privatize our possessions because we do not trust your overflowing abundance. We fail to see that everything we have is a generous gift from you. When we do share, we often do so with bitterness and a sense of obligation instead of joy. We deceive ourselves, thinking we are a better stewards with our lives than you are. But you call us to be a people of overflow, who give not only of their resources, but of their entire lives, trusting that you supply everything we need. So create in us generous hearts, O Lord. Stir in us spirits willing to give readily as we follow after you, our giver of life. Amen. And now let me read over Psalm 103, which assures us that we are indeed forgiven. Psalm 103, 8 through 12. The Lord God is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. The Lord God will not accuse nor will the Lord harbor the Lord's anger forever. The Lord God does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is the Lord's love for those who fear the Lord. As far as the east is from the west, so far has the Lord removed our, your transgressions from us. All God's people said, let us hold the bread, remembering that Jesus with his disciples looked at the bread and said, this is my body given for you. Remembering that we are made whole through what God has done for us. Let us receive the bread together. And let us hold the cup now. And Jesus says, this cup represents the new covenant, the covenants, which is the words, I am your God and you are my people. This is God's declaration over us that God is our God and we are God's people forever and ever and ever. Let us receive the gift of the cup together. Mm. And now in worship, let us remember the God who is so generously given to us. May we delight in the wonder of that. rescued me, us. Love came down, set us free. You know, it's almost, well, it is never a good idea to compare ourselves to other people. That's never the point. But it is actually interesting what Paul does here, and let me use this as a benediction. 
There's a difference between comparing yourself versus looking at the testimony of somebody else's story and letting that be an inspiration. And so the Apostle Paul says, this church in Macedonia, they know something of the love of God that we should know. And so let me just remind you of these words again in verse 9. This will be our benediction. This is what these believers in Macedonia understood. And Paul believed this is, this is the secret to, to accessing that reality that love came down to rescue us. Love came down to set us free. Paul says, for we can come to know the grace, that big, simple, lovely word. We can come to know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And here's one way to think of it, that though God was rich for your sake, for my sake, for our sake, for the collective sake, God became poor so that through what God did, we might become rich in all those things. So let us remember indeed, love has come to rescue us. Love has come to set us free. God wants us to be rich in the things of God. And all God's people said, amen. Love y'all.